You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on West Nile virus with Dr. Erica Schwartz. I'm your host, Carly Sisson, Digital Editor of EquiManagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2023 by Merck Animal Health. Schwartz, DVM, MPH, PhD, DACVM, is a clinical veterinary microbiologist at the Montana Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. As microbiology section head, she provides diagnostic technical expertise and veterinary consultation. Schwartz oversees daily operations and clinical testing in the bacteriology, virology, molecular diagnostics, and serology sections. She joined the Montana team in late 2019. Schwartz received her Bachelor of Science, Master of Public Health, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from the University of Florida. She is also board certified by the American College of Veterinary Microbiologists. As a classically trained virologist, she has extensive background working with a wide variety of human and animal pathogens. Her professional interests include infectious diseases at the human, domestic, animal, wildlife interface, diagnostic techniques for high-consequence pathogens, translational medicine, and One Health. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is going to be a really interesting conversation about West Nile virus. We've obviously seen quite a few cases this year in particular. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about the history of West Nile virus? Sure. So West Nile virus was actually first isolated from a febrile human patient in northern Uganda in 1937, but it didn't make its debut into the United States until more than 70 years later. In 1999, the New York City Department of Health was investigating a cluster of severe cases of encephalitis in human patients who had otherwise been previously healthy, and initial testing for typical encephalitic viruses all came back negative. Um, Around the same time, a veterinary pathologist by the name of Dr. Tracy McNamara, who was at the time working for the Bronx Zoo, started to investigate reports of large amounts of crows that were dying after showing similar clinical signs as what the humans were dying from. And shortly after this, some of the birds at the Bronx Zoo also started dying of a similar mysterious illness. So Dr. McNamara took samples from these animals and submitted them to the United States Department of Agriculture's reference lab, the National Veterinary Services Laboratory in Ames, Iowa, and testing was undertaken that took about three months to determine the cause of the avian deaths was the newly emerging West Nile virus. So today, West Nile virus is considered endemic to the lower 48 states, and it's actually considered to be the most common mosquito-borne virus in the continental United States. And horses are particularly at risk for this virus, correct? It's basically humans and horses and birds? Yeah, so in terms of affected species, aside from humans, horses are the most common mammal that can be infected with West Nile virus. Other animals like bats, rodents, rabbits, skunks, and even alligators have been known to become infected, but this is incredibly rare in comparison. Horses make up about 97% of non-human mammalian West Nile virus cases. Birds are also susceptible to the virus. There are, um, there's a number of birds that are not considered reservoir species for the virus, but can be infected and show clinical signs. Corvids like crows, 
magpies and ravens are particularly susceptible and will show very significant clinical disease and death associated with infection. Oh, wow. Okay. So what are some of the clinical signs of West Nile virus in horses specifically? So both horses and humans are considered dead-end hosts, which means that once they get the virus being bitten by a mosquito that's infected, the virus can't replicate to high enough titers in our bodies to be passed to a non-infected feeding mosquito. So the transmission cycle stops with us. So we just experience significant disease in some cases and in other cases, more mild disease. Horses in particular, about 80% of horses don't experience very significant disease when they're infected with West Nile virus. Um, 20% or or so will show clinical signs, Um, but horses are more likely than humans to develop severe neuroinvasive disease once infected. So in humans, about 80% of West Nile virus infected people are asymptomatic, which means they don't show any clinical signs. About 20% of them have flu-like symptoms, and then around 1% will develop West Nile neuroinvasive disease, which is what we typically think of when we think of clinical severe West Nile virus disease. In horses, about 20% um, will show clinical signs, and some will show more mild signs like fever, anorexia, generally just not doing well, um, maybe a little bit off, but about 10% of that of that overall infected population will show severe neuroinvasive disease. And so depending on where the virus localizes in the brain after crossing the blood-brain barrier, it can cause disease in the brain or the spinal cord. And that can manifest as changes in mentation. So things like uptundation, depression, sometimes hyperexcitability or compulsive behaviors like chewing or pacing, locomotive issues or recumbency, cranial nerve aberrations or reduced reflexes, facial tremors and muscle fasciculations, lip drooping, ataxia, kneeling, dog sitting, and sometimes things like limb weakness or paresis. And mild cases generally have a decent shot at recovery, but as you probably guessed, the more neurologic the horse, the more guarded the prognosis. Some of these animals will actually go down and won't get back up again. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and a partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurement when coupled with Merck Animal Health biothermal microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. So how would you go about diagnosing West Nile virus in a horse? And maybe you can touch upon diagnosing a severe case like you were just talking about and diagnosing a horse that maybe has less severe symptoms where you might be considering some other diseases as well. Sure. In the less severe cases, oftentimes we don't do a whole lot of diagnostic testing, especially for things like neurologic disease or neurologic viruses. 
So in a lot of cases where the horse might just be febrile, maybe just a little bit anorexic, not eating well, um, in those cases, a lot of practitioners aren't going to immediately jump to diagnostics for West Nile virus, and we're just going to maybe treat them a little bit supportively and see how they do. And those cases will typically do very well. Um, and after time, they'll recover. So a lot, I think probably a lot of cases of mild West Nile virus go undiagnosed. In the case of more severe disease, uh, when we see a neurologic horse, obviously a practitioner is going to go through the whole spectrum of their clinical examination. They're going to look at um, any of the neurologic signs that the horse might be exhibiting, try to localize that to where the problem might be. And if it's suggestive of something like a neurologic virus, like West Nile virus, we might pull some blood and do some diagnostic testing. Typically, for anti-mortem testing, we primarily diagnose horses with serology. So we look for the presence of West Nile virus antibodies in the blood serum. In horses, we're really lucky to have a very nice, widely available assay called the IgM Capture ELISA. So this test will be used to determine whether the animal has been acutely infected with the virus by detecting the presence of immunoglobulin M, which is one of the first antibody responses that we see post-infection. So this test is rapid and it's highly accurate. And generally speaking, a positive IgM test is a good indicator of acute infection. So we can diagnose horses about a week post-infection up to about two months post-infection using this assay. And that's typically the most common way we get a quick diagnosis for West Nile virus in the anti-mortem horse. Sometimes the picture is a little bit less clear in some vaccinated horses, uh, there will be, they won't mount as significant of an IgM response as a naive horse. And in those cases, we might have to do some additional testing to look for the presence of neutralizing antibodies using a test called a plaque reduction neutralization test. Um, and that tells us that there's, um, there's neutralizing antibodies that are actively, they're trying to bind to the virus and literally neutralize it. And in these cases, what we suggest is taking an initial sample and then a sample a couple of weeks later and looking for a change in antibody levels that's suggestive of infection. And usually that's about a fourfold increase in antibody titers. We do that occasionally. We don't do that, I'd say, for a majority of cases. Most horses were, were very lucky to have the IgM test. We can get a very quick answer, usually same day testing. And so that's that's the main way that we will diagnose horses anti-mortem. If that test comes up negative, it doesn't necessarily mean the horse is negative. IgM antibodies do take about a week to get to the point where they're detectable. So if the horse starts showing clinical signs a couple of days after infection, we might not have enough antibody in the sample yet to, de to detect it. In other cases, we might need to rule out other types of neurologic viruses, things like equine herpes virus, eastern equine encephalitis, depending on which part of the country that you're in. And so it becomes a little bit of a juggling game that you have to try to look at what we have available for diagnostics and make sense of it. And in a lot of cases, in the context of vaccination, because all of these different neurologic viruses do have vaccines available. In a horse that is severely neurologic and has not been vaccinated for rabies, we also have to consider rabies as a possible differential. Yeah, that's interesting about the rabies. That's a good thing to keep in mind. 
How would you go about treating or providing supportive care for horses affected by West Nile virus? Sure. So the treatment depends on the severity of the case. In horses that are not showing neurologic signs, they might just need a little bit of supportive care to help them get over uh, the viral infection, help them to recover. And generally, this is going to be basic things like anti-inflammatories, maybe some fluid therapy. Um, in horses that are showing a lot more significant neurologic disease, we are going to have fairly limited options for treatment. Most horses that show severe neurologic disease have a guarded prognosis, especially if they become recumbent. Uh, West Nile virus has about a 30 to 40% mortality rate. And so we can support those horses with anti-inflammatories and pain medications and try to help them the best that we can. But there are no approved antiviral medications for the treatment of equine West Nile virus. So we basically have to hope for the best and support them the best that we can. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough disease to treat once an animal becomes severely neurologic. In the cases of these animals that are severely neurologic and they do recover, many of them will also have long-term complications that may change their ability to perform their job. They might not be rideable anymore. There might be permanent behavior changes. There might be permanent locomotive changes. So that's something to consider in these severely affected animals as well. What would you say the best strategies for preventing the disease in general are maybe on-horse protection and vaccination or a combination? Yeah, so the, the best options for preventing West Nile virus are mosquito control and vaccination. So West Nile virus is a mosquito-borne disease. It is transmitted um, from in its natural life cycle from mosquito to bird and then back to mosquito. Horses and humans are considered dead end hosts, which means that, again, we don't replicate the virus in our bodies to high enough amounts to be able to transmit it to other animals or to other mosquitoes. And so the virus, the life cycle stops in our bodies, but it will continue to circulate in the environment as long as there's a competent reservoir, which is typically birds in the United States. It's the American robin, um, other passerine species as well. And then mosquitoes, for the mosquito vectors, we have competent vectors all over the country. So Culex pipiens is the northern house mosquito. That's the main vector in the eastern part of the U.S. Culex tarsalis lives throughout the U.S., but it's mainly the vector for West Nile in the Midwest and the western United States. And then Culex kinkafasciatus, I'm sorry, I probably butchered that, <laughs> Um, it's the southern house mosquito, and it can be found in the southeastern region of the United States. But these mosquitoes don't know boundaries. And so we have plenty of competent mosquitoes all across the country. Um, and depending on season, you know, those mosquitoes might be more prevalent during certain months or might be prevalent all year round. So it's really important to make sure that we're cognizant of mosquito control. This benefits both horses and humans. Um, things like fly spray, fly sheets, um, removing manure when possible, standing water control, making sure that we're not leaving buckets or troughs or empty receptacles like old tires that could store water, standing water, and become a breeding ground for mosquitoes. 
running troughs over, using running water whenever possible, turning over empty wheelbarrows, putting up fans and stalls. And then if possible, having companies come out and do some environmental spraying, it can really bring down the level of a vector in an area. Vaccination, I probably can't say it enough. That is such an effective way to prevent this disease. We have really effective equine vaccines on the market. There's currently no human vaccines. These vaccines need to be used according to the label directions. They typically require an initial dose and a booster, and then they require revaccination on a yearly basis. And this is really something that people don't think about in places where we have a real winter. So in the the south or on the eastern seaboard or in in kind of the Gulf Coast states, people think about vaccination a lot more than people in the northern part of the country where we don't see mosquitoes for half the year. So there's this misunderstanding that you don't need to vaccinate horses in certain parts of the country. And that's simply not true. We see you know, the highest incidence of West Nile virus is actually in the Midwestern part of the country. So about from Eastern Montana and the Dakotas all the way to the Great Lakes region, south towards the the north part of Texas and into the Gulf states. That's where the highest incidence of West Nile virus is. This threat does not go away. It typically peaks in the the spring and into the summer months, usually with the, the most cases being from about July to October. And that usually coincides with rainy seasons in most parts of the country. So it's important to get horses vaccinated in the spring so that they have enough time to mount an antibody response that's going to be protective during the most significant part of the summer when those mosquitoes are most active. But it's really important across the entire country that that message is heard that vaccination is so important regardless of the climate that you live in year round. Right. That's so important. And do you ever recommend fall boosters for horses in northern climates that will experience a real winter? Not usually fall boosters. Usually we recommend revaccination in the spring on a yearly basis. And that's that's usually enough to give them a really strong titer throughout the summer. Um, Antibodies do take a few weeks to peak. So after a vaccine, you're not immediately protected by that vaccine until your immune system has a chance to respond. So it's important to time those vaccines. If you if you do experience a real winter, you still have snow on the ground, you probably have a couple of weeks before mosquitoes are really going to you know peak once the snow melts. So timing those vaccines with the end of the spring and the early part of the summer, that's usually a, a good time to shoot for in northern climates. Right. Now, I'm just wondering if there's any research to indicate why some horses become so much more severely ill with the disease than others? Is that related at all to vaccination history? Is it random? Um, Certainly, unvaccinated animals are more at risk of experiencing severe clinical disease. Um, The vaccine titers tend to be fairly long-lived, as opposed to other types of vaccines that we have that maybe only induce immunity for a few months. The the West Nile vaccines are very good at producing a a longer-lived immunity. And so the horses that have had a vaccine, even if it's not totally, totally current, usually have a better shot at coming, coming out of it unscathed, you know, if that makes any sense. There's 
Right. I know there has been some research on some genetic components that might play a role in making a horse more susceptible to neuroinvasive disease or not. Um, but I think we're still a little bit in the dark as to what factors might make an individual animal more susceptible than another. But certainly vaccine history is a is a big one. Well, thank you, Dr. Shores, for joining us on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And thank you to our audience for listening. And a special thank you to our 2023 sponsor, Merck Animal Health, who gives us the opportunity to have these discussions. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to csisson at equinenetwork.com. That's C-S-I-S-S-O-N at equinenetwork.com. Thank you.